רגע, לפני שמתחילים, אם אתם יכולים, בבקשה, דרגו אותנו באפליקציית הפודקאסטים שלכם. זה מאוד מאוד יעזור לנו להפיץ את הבשורה של הערוץ ליותר אנשים. ממש תודה רבה לכם. פתיח ומתחילים. The man that you see on the screen is Professor, is Professor J. Mark Bischoff. Professor Mark Bischoff is Professor of Cognitive Computing, Emeritus, and a Chief Scientist Advisor to FACT 360. He is a world expert in artificial intelligence, in the psychology of artificial intelligence, and the philosophy of, of artificial intelligence, including his many works. There is a deep and profound reference to the Turing test and the Chinese room test by John Searle and the and answer to the questions, can computers feel pain? Most recently, he published a great paper called Artificial Intelligence is Stupid and Causal Reasoning Will Not Fix It. So today I'm having Professor Mark, J. Mark Bishop on the show. Professor Mark, thank you so much for coming. How are you? I'm great. Nice to see you. It's my privilege. Uh, uh, now, before I start, it says on LinkedIn, according to LinkedIn, you're emeritus. Now, how come emeritus? You are not old. I am old. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I've retired. I, I, I'm an elderly gentleman in, the twi- in my twilight years. And uh, I, I've retired from, uh, from academia. Uh, and I have an unpaid role in a startup called Fact360, who are using AI and uh, NLP and machine learning to deduce insights about corporate communication networks uh, that can be used in investigation, typically looking at fraud and activities like that. This was exactly my very next question, because according to LinkedIn again, Uh, fact 360 is pioneering the use of AI and unsupervised machine learning to analyze communication network knowledge now. And I had a conversation with Professor Nadav Cohen from Tel Aviv University, and we ponder about Yan Lekun quote that if intelligence is a cake, then uh, unsupervised learning is a cake, supervised is the icing, and reinforcement is a sherry on the icing. Mm-hmm. And uh, could you please elaborate if... Uh, On your fact 360 what does it mean that you take unsupervised that you take unsupervised machine learning and use it to analyze communication networks well I think it'd be helpful to go back a stage or two um, obviously I'm a little bit tied in what I can say about uh, about the company because there's a lot of IP at stake under the hood so I'm going to be fairly generic so I, I won't be giving too much away of our secret source. Um, but what is out in the open is that our work is primarily grounded on uh, research that happened way back in World War II in the UK at Bletchley Park, but not work by Alan Turing. Turing was famously interested in decoding the semantics of the German Enigma ciphers, what the messages actually said, what the words meant. Um, but there was another guy who was working at the time. And his work was concerned with the metadata. Um, 
what the uh, the German commander A in Berlin was communicating with German commander B in Paris at a certain time and place and date. And it was shown that we could get very useful analysis uh, uh, and intelligence from the analysis of metadata. So that was our starting point um, uh, as a company. We thought, well, what we can do well, if we look at metadata, and there's certain advantages because immediately out of the box, we've got techniques that analyze communication networks in a language neutral way. So we're not concerned with the meaning of the tokens that are getting ex exchanged. We're just looking at the metadata of what's been exchanged and the uninterpreted symbols. And that's a phrase I'll come back to if we get talking about the Chinese room later on. The uninterpreted symbols and the patterns of these symbols in the messages. So we're concerned with two things. We're looking at what we can deduce from the metadata and we can, we've got various metrics we, we can realize from that that can be extremely helpful in, um, uh, in detecting activity, from, from in, in problems from detecting fraud to for the military looking at uh, networks of say potentially terrorist actors and identifying who are the key players in those networks. We can do all of this without looking at uh, the semantics of what's being said. Now coupled with that, we've also got AI that looks at messages as effectively undecoded squiggles and squabbles and sees whether there's changes in the ways that the, the, the way that people communicate over time. And we're looking at automatically flagging uh, uh, via uh, technique, our own sort of change point analysis uh, uh, algorithms when uh, communications pattern, when communication patterns between key actors change. And that can be indicative. Our basic hypothesis is that when people's behavior, when people's language change, that can be indicative of behavioral changes. And to flesh that out, uh, I, I was once telling a friend how I uh, um, slightly bent the rules on, on, on some uh, internal accounting on a, on, a, on a grant. And the second that I did that, the way that I was discussing the problem changed. And that's exactly those nuanced changes in communication patterns that FAT360 is concerned with picking up. So that's that's what I, I kind of do, not not full-time. I'm also a full-time carer for my, my elderly mother, and that takes up a huge amount of time. But in, 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 uh, I spend my time advising the company where I can. There are very clever people in the company, and they don't need my advice all the time, so you're not. But where I can contribute to Fat360, I, I still do. Interesting, the backstory to the company is that just a few years ago, I headed a, a research group at, at the University of London called TCIDA, uh, the Centre for Intelligent Data Analytics. And that was a, an unusual company uh, research centre that was completely commercially funded. So we applied ourselves not to problems in AI, like trying to get a computer to play a good game of Go or chess or, or, or Doom or whatever you might want, but looking at purely business-focused problems because our funding stream was completely business-focused. So my job as director was always to be looking out for the next uh, uh, funding project. And we got interested in this work on, on what we call transactional analytics um, uh, on NLP uh, because one of our sponsors was looking at uh, the insider threat problem. Can we give early warning when people are, uh, are going to be behaving detrimentally to companies? And uh, he funded the company for a, for some time, and then eventually the, the, the project got so big that the, the all the team, all my team, left to set up Fact360, leaving me as a director of a centre with no employees. 
And uh, I, I could have begun the recruitment process and started from scratch again. But after a month or two, I thought this was a good time to leave academia. And, and then so I then joined FACT360. So instead of being director, uh, as I was at the centre at Goldsmiths, I became reporting to some of the people I used to employ. So it's kind of a strange irony now that, that notionally I work for some of the people that I used to employ at FACT360. Sorry, you're on mute. Oh, <laughs> I try to be quiet. It's very hard for me since I'm in Israel. So one question that, uh, that I need to just nail when you say metadata in the context of language, we said like in, in the World War II example, uh, message A was coming from Berlin to Paris in a certain date, in a certain place, in a certain time. This is kind thing of a metadata? Yeah, exactly. But basically we graph out communication. Uh, our secrets, well, one of the things our secrets was we graph out, we take corpuses of communications, for example, emails, but they might just as easily be Slack messages, tweets, Facebook messages, WhatsApp messages, whatever, and we put them into a graph. And this graph is for one of the things that allows us to do some pretty sexy stats and AI on the processes is that we fundamentally embed everything in continuous time. So uh, we take a corpus of messages and we build a continuous time graph of, of those messages, who's communicating to who, when and when, and we also have the option to look at where as well. Uh, and then we apply various transactional metrics on, on these. Transactional metrics are what people do. And again, our intuition for why this is a valuable, uh, an interesting way to look at analysing getting intelligence is that if you consider, I don't know whether you've ever used Facebook or a dating site profile, but consider the white lies you might tell on, on such a, a social media profile compared with the bald fact that you're talking to me at this time and place today. That's, uh, as far as anything is true about the world, this is a fact of the matter. What you happen to write, oh, I'm, I'm a six foot two bodybuilding weightlifter with blonde hair and all the women drop dead when they, when they first see me. That might be something you might spin on your social media, which might not be an exact representation of the truth. The, the behavior we say is easier to pin down and give factual uh, uh, descriptions of what's going on. So we think these transactional metrics have an intrinsic power that's often glossed over. When people are so attracted to the idea of decoding the semantics of what people say, uh, that they miss a lot of what can be obtained by looking at transactional actions of what people actually do. Okay, so uh, without uh, any delays, let's move on to your latest, one of your latest articles, uh, and this is a this is a bomb title: "Artificial Intelligence is Stupid, and Causal Reasoning Will Not Fix It." Now, I'm reading this article, and I read it thoroughly, uh, or thoroughly, as you as you said, and it's and it this article was published in Frontiers in Psychology. And I guess this is why you explain some basic aspect of the field of artificial intelligence, neural network, et cetera. But it seems to me that there are two orthogonal questions here. One is the engineering question. Can we build an AI model that acts as if it understands? Now I will give some uh, example from your paper. Uh, AI get things wrong. An autonomous vehicle crashes, a chatbot exhibit racist behavior, automated credit scoring process discriminate on gender. This is this is not a mistake, but okay. <laughs> and then you give your Siri, yes, your Siri example, which is a great example. 
you ask Siri, hi Siri, add a liter of books to my shopping list. And Siri just add a liter of books. And Siri doesn't understand that a liter of books means just a lot of books, okay? And this one is the uh, engineering engineering can we build an ai model can we can we better siri can we better autonomous vehicles etc and the other orthogonal question is can we see real understanding in these systems can this system feel like we do experience like we do hate like we often do now i have two questions a in which side of the court you play in the engineering or in the uh, philosophical psychological and B, do you consider this question as orthogonal or you say like Gary Marcus and Judea Pearl that since real understanding doesn't exist in these systems, we will never can fully solve the engineering problem. Um, I tend to conceive them as orthogonal um, because it's an open question whether every human activity is computable. Um, and my intuition is to be skeptical on this uh, question. Why, am, why is, what grounds that intuition? Well, there's a very simple fact of computability theory that grounds it. And that's, if we look at functions, uh, uh, if we look at computable functions, um, uh, I, I don't know, can I solve a particular problem? How am I, I optimize my time at work? And, and, and define that problem as a function. We now have some complex function. I want to know, can I build a computer that will that will solve that problem as well as a human or better than a human? Well, <clears throat> we know from basic computable computability theory that there are only a countable, countably infinite number of computable functions. However, there are a countably, uncountably infinite number of possible functions. And so they're equivalent to mapping onto the reals and onto the integers. So there are, what's worse is that there's an uncountably infinite number of non-computable problems. And I mean non-computable in the strict formal sense of the word, like the Turing-Halting problem. So in other words, if we look at this purely in masses of set sizes, there's a damn sight bigger, there's an infinitely number, larger number of the non-computable than the computable. So that ought to give us a little bit of humility when we're, when we're thinking about what can be computed. And there's a metaphor I try to, I often try to use. If you consider, if you've ever seen a plasma globe, these are like these little spheres that discharge a plasma lamp and they're quite pretty to look at. Now we can morph these questions onto, onto this thing. If we consider the surface of the globe as all the possible problems that a human can engage in. And this is a real surface, so it can it, it, it points on it are demarked by real, real numbers, real coordinates. The first question is, can we get a computer program to visit every single one of those points? And the second, and that would be fine. That would say, that would say, if we think about it really hard, can we get a computer to solve every problem a human does? But the AGI problem, that, that would still be dreadful. If that, if we could do that, it still might be the case we couldn't build an AGI because we have to might have to engineer bespoke solutions to every problem. And of course, there's an uncountably infinite number of these things. So the aim from the AGI community is can we get some sort of generic programs that will automatically effectively map out large areas of that surface and together cover the entire surface. Now, just a second, Mark, just a second. Just a second. AGI mean artificial general intelligence. intelligence. Okay, because I'm sorry, 
And this is similar, and I will ask you uh, a little bit more. This is similar to what we call strong AI. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, please, please continue. I'm sorry. So the question is, can, is every point on the surface of that globe visitable by a computer? Uh, and then secondly, can we do generic programs so we haven't got to boringly engineer a bespoke program for every problem that we're interested in? Both of those issues, are, as, far as, as far as I'm concerned, are open questions. If you speak to people from the OpenAI Institute, they say, yes, GPT-3 or whatever their favourite technology is can cover all the surface of that globe. It's, 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 it's just a matter of time. Throw a few more billion neurons at the problem and we'll have your problem solved. I'm a little bit more humble. I don't see any evidence, hard evidence yet, that A, the computer can solve every one of those problems, and that B, we can generalize and get simple programs that can cover large swathes of the surface of that plasma globe. So that's where I think the two issues, one issue, the engineering issues come to the fore. Now, the second issue is even if you could get a computer program to do all those functions as well or better than a human, would it still uh, have generally understand what it was doing. And my firm belief, and this is not grounded on an intuition, this is grounded on the work of the American uh, philosopher uh, of intentionality, John Searle, uh, and, and his Chinese Zoom argument, which we might get a chance to talk about later, is that no, even if we got something that could duplicate every or simulate all aspects of human behavior it still would not understand what it was doing um and does that matter i would argue that it does but we'll need to get into the chinese room a little because bit because I, because it is we know that if it if if it walks like a duck and it quacks like a duck then it's a duck and, yeah. and, and 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 in you know in many this is where we meant to i i wouldn't agree with that axiom Ah, okay, okay. No. This is like a no, because I, I because I spoke with Judea on the show and say if it can imitate, yes. So so the 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 entire concept of imitation, if you can imitate human behavior completely, then you got human behavior. But you, here you disagree with Judea. No, I can give no. you a simple analogy from everyday life that might bring this issue to the fore. I've got an eight-year-old daughter. Uh, and sometimes if my wife and I are entertaining, uh, we'll have adults around, and occasionally people tell a joke that's an adult-orientated joke. It requires a degree of sophistication and interaction with the world that an eight-year-old child doesn't have. Nonetheless, my child can laugh, but does that mean she's understood the joke? No. So she can behaviourally give the signals of understanding, but not understand. So just getting the behavior right is not uh, a guarantor of understanding. And this is, what I think, what the Chinese room so elegantly brings to the surface. And yes, fact, but, but, but it's an unfair example because you can go one step further and ask your daughter, why are you laughing? You shouldn't laugh. And this is what I, when, when my kid is, is laughing from an uh, adult-oriented joke, I get suspicious. Why are you laughing? You shouldn't understand it. So if if you just take, you know, like a fragment of 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 reality, yes. But if you took but if you you know expand this fragment, it can't imitate more than you are okay. I I, I I gave that as a frivolous example just because it's simple to it's a simple yes. example that people perhaps relate to. If we once we get into the Chinese room, I will uh, nuance that m much more deeply 
in a way that I think will rebut your your your, your criticism. Okay, um, so in, kind of a frivolous, a frivolous but thing. before but before we go into the Chinese room, before we go into the Chinese room, there is another thing, and the and another thing is the great quote from Kirk that everything that we experience is the brain. Everything that we experience is the brain. You get the Kirk quote for 1994, you, your joys, your sorrow, your memories, your ambitions, your sense of personal identity and free will are in fact no more than the behavior of vast assembly of nerve cell and their associated molecules, okay? So this is Kirk. And now we have like the human brain, the blue brain, the deep brain, the all, all, all those enterprises that, that want to simulate 100% the human brain. And me, as an religious Orthodox Jew, I think that some ingredient is missing in this formula, okay? I think that there is a transcendental to human beings. And, my, and therefore, if we simulate, yes, the entire human brain, 100%, we still don't get human because they, something immensely important and profoundly important is missing. And my question is, can I say the same thing even if, even if I don't believe in the transcendental? Yes, I, I think this relates to something that drops out of the, our analysis of the Chinese room, and that's what's called the phenomenal component of understanding. It feels like something to understand. And I think this is beautifully illustrated in at the turn of the last century uh, by uh, the experiences of Helen Keller, I don't know if you've heard of Helen Keller. Yeah, yes. She's, she was completely deaf, completely blind, completely um, everything. Yeah, until her tutor... And initially she learned what's called, a, I think, a home signing system. In other words, she developed a language that was unique to her and her immediate uh, carers, where she had about 80 signs. But they didn't form... Most linguists would say that it lacked this... Signing lacked the power of a, a full-blown sign language, but it enabled her to, to meet very basic bodily needs. And then after some years, the parents engaged a tutor called Anne Sullivan. And Anne began to draw on, on Helen's hand uh, uh, various symbols. And after a while, Helen said she got quite good at imitating them, but she had no idea what she was doing. And then one day, the, uh, Anne was writing the symbols for water while Helen's hand was in the cold water of a stream, if I remember rightly. And she put the two things together. She realized that the sign was a symbolic representation of the wetness of water. So the sign was grounded, as we say in AR terminology, by the phenomenal experience of water. So I think that's one in, illustration of how phenomenal sensation, the raw feel of water, can help ground uh, 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 ground works and ground symbols. Um, <clears throat> for, in, in more recent years, um, the computer scientist Stefan Harnard, in his review of uh, Luciano Floridi's uh, epic, uh, The Philosophy of Information, uh, Stefan again draws attention to the phenomenal component of understanding. He says it feels like something to understand, and I completely concur with this. And then finally, in my response to the philosopher John Howland's critique of Searle's Chinese Room, um, which we may get into later on, it's quite a technical discussion, so I don't want to go into it now, but I, I basically make the claim that when we 
that when John Searle's in the Chinese room and listening to a joke in English, you might laugh and you'll find it, you'll feel it funny. You'll find the phenomenal sensation of laughter. When he's acting as a computer program, he might output the symbols ha-ha to a joke in Chinese, but he won't even be aware a joke's been made. So there's this, this phenomenal sensation is, is a mark of understanding in my opinion. Okay. It, it brings us like, I often go back to what Melanie Mitchell said, that one cannot have, we have this notion of human intelligence as a brain that's connected to other parts, but without feelings, without the human body, it is very hard to, to know or to imagine what intelligence would look like, what human intelligence would look like without all of this facility. Now, uh, before we go into the Chinese room, I think that we need to have a little short stop at the Turing test itself, okay? Since the Chinese room is an argument regarding the Turing test. Now, the Turing test, I will say what I know about the Turing test, and please correct me. Alan Turing proposed this test in his profound uh, articles. I can prepare just a second. The, the name of the article is <clears throat> uh, Computing Machinery and Intelligence. And in Computer Machinery and Intelligence, he said that a computer program will consider intelligence if I speak through a terminal, because it doesn't matter if I can see the program or not, if I speak with two, with one, in, one, one agent with, which is human and other agent which is a machine, and I ask both agent uh, questions and get answers and respond to their answers, etc. If I cannot distinguish between the man, the human agent and the machine agent, then I will have to conclude that the machine presented intelligence. Would you say that this is a fair summary of the Turing test? It, 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 it's a, it is a fair summary. What's interesting about the Turing test, um, and uh, I hosted a, a workshop on uh, the Turing test and trying to pin down what Turing meant by the Turing test at the University of Reading in around 2008. And um, what's interesting, if you go through it extremely carefully, as academics are wont to do, the computing machinery paper, you'll see that he there are three different interpretations of the Turing test. Uh, the, the one that I think most people use, I call the standard interpretation, runs roughly as, as, as you outlined. There are other more nuanced interpretations that, because the, the well, to understand this, you need to go back one stage and that Turing invented his Turing test on, by reflecting on, on, a, on a Victorian parlor game called the imitation game. Uh, and this was basically a game where you had um, a, a man and woman going to, into two rooms in a house and the guests in the house had to determine the, the, the gender of the, uh, uh, which room had the man and which room had the woman purely by asking questions that were written on pieces of paper. Uh, and of course, what makes it interesting is that the respondents are allowed to lie. And what makes it interesting is that the questioner can ask about absolutely anything. And I've played this game with my undergrads and postgrads for that matter many times. And it's actually quite a hard game to, to get to do well, to do well at. Interestingly, it's a sort of situation that many people, if they immerse themselves in on multi, large multi-layer online games now, have to deal with every day if you're speaking with other characters and only communicating by text. Some people might pretend to be guys when they're really women and some 
men might pretend to be women when they're really guys. So it, what be, began as a bizarre parlor game is something I think these days a lot of young kids are dealing with on a day-to-day basis. <laughs> so that's kind of funny. So can we do that? And the answer is that you can. You can you can't do it perfectly, but you can do it pretty well. You can do it. I mean, Turing talks in the paper about being able to pass the Turing test as well as humans at about 70% of the time. And certainly, you know, I, I like to think I can play that game and approach that level of performance. So the standard interpretation of the Turing test is, is as you say, can we determine which, which uh, set of answers is being generated by a computer and which uh, is being generated by a human? Um, other, than you, other nuanced interpretations, you have the idea of whether you've got in one room a man pretending to be a woman and can, they, uh, can we determine which is a man pretending to be a woman and which is a computer pretending to be a woman for argument's sake? And there are various uh, riffs of, of, of that idea, but we explore them in the introduction to the Carbonetti special issue on the Turing test, which was published in around 2008, 2009. Yes, you have an entire book devoted to the yes. Turing test and to the Chinese room. Now, can I it's offer another- well, the, the, the Turing test book was a special issue of a journal, the Chinese room, but was co-edited by myself and John Preston, uh, called Views into the Chinese room. Yeah. Can I offer another interpretation that I read some, somewhere, and uh, unfortunately I, I forgot where- well, before you do, you, oh, okay, yes, 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 please. there's one critical thing that is often glossed over about the Turing test, which all people, all the, all the, I said there were three coherent interpretations that can be derived from Turing's paper. All of them focus on this, and that's the idea that the test is interactive. So you're, const- you're interacting with the system. Why this is important is that some people say, have uh, uh, said, oh, I've got a Turing test, well, I'll play some music that's created by a computer, and people have to guess, or put their hand up if it's computer-generated or human-generated. That isn't really a Turing test because it's not an interaction. You're listening to something and making a decision, yes or no, end of story, there's no interaction. So the interaction- This is inspired, is- inspired from the Turing test. But can I offer one, one explanation or one interpretation that Turing himself wasn't interested whether artificial intelligence really exists. What he said that if a machine acts like a human being, we will assign it an intelligent behavior. And this is what we discussed earlier, that you said, no, this is a profoundly different thing. And Ellen Turing specifically said, no, I want this like game of imitation. If the computer can imitate intelligence, rational behavior, then I have nothing to say. Yeah, exactly. I think that that is the position Alan Turing points to or leads us to in in the computing machinery paper. Um, I think John Searle's Chinese Room targets lots of things, in particular some of the wilder claims that were coming out at the time from Chang and Abelson's lab in the 70s. Um, but it, it's clearly been read historically as a critique of the adequacy of the Turing test. Uh, and I, I, because I think Searle's argument is robust, I do think the Turing test fails as adequately as a test for thinking and understanding. So, uh, with your permission, can you, I want to present another question to the Turing test, which is not, I, I almost never hear when I see people speak about the Turing test. And this is from you know, Artificial Intelligence, A General Approach, which is a great book. And it, it, it's like in page number three, when they presented the Turing test, they say the following thing. Yet AI researchers have devoted little effort to passing the Turing test, believing that it's mo- it is more important to study the underlying principles of intelligence than to duplicate an exemplar. 
the quest for artificial flight succeeded when the Wright brothers and others stopped imitating birds and started using wind tunnel and learning about aerodynamics. Aeronautical engineering texts don't define the goal of their field as making machines that fly so exactly like pigeons that they can fool even other pigeons. And this uh, very good argument against the Turing test. Why do I oh, need... I'm sorry, it, 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 that's incoherent. Alan Turing is utterly neutral about the way in which uh, the technologies we deploy to get a system to, to pass the Turing test. The paper says nothing about them. He, he talks in there uh, about the, the fact that he hypothesizes learning is going to be involved. He talks about brain simulators, if you like. But I don't think he's prescriptive on, on the method by which we have a system that can pass the Turing test. He just says that if we did, by whatever technology, um, little golems in a bottle, if you like, but whatever technology we computationally simulate, if we can get something that passes the Turing test, then it, we've got to say, we should say of that system that it thinks. What I think that Russell and Novik try to say is that, that when people fly and when birds fly, it is different procedure. And yeah. maybe, maybe where human think and machine think, this is a different procedure. Maybe artificial intelligence shouldn't be aimed to be just exactly like human intelligence. Maybe we need to go in a different direction and say, okay, artificial intelligence reason in a different way. And we don't need to metric, we don't need to evaluate how good an artificial intelligence system is based on human intelligence, because those are two different I, I, things. I'm still not convinced by the metaphor, because if that was the case, the, you would not be arguing about copying a bird's methods of flying. That's a technology. That's saying, should we use neural networks or some symbolic method to build intelligent systems? What you seem to be alluding to is that, should we even be bothering to fly at all? Perhaps there are better means of transportation. Should we be driving? Should we be going by boat? Should it be teleporting from A to B? These would be the, I think this is more akin to the question you're asking when you're saying, do we need to, for something to be counted as intelligent, should we move away from considering the, the activities that humans uh, no, yeah, I think that you gave a good answer. It, I, I think that what you said now is a very good answer because, again, the purpose in in this example is to fly, and yeah. and, and and the mechanism doesn't make a difference. So it can yeah. be a brain nerve cell and it can be a deep neural network. Okay, yeah. I yeah. got it. When Peter Novig uh, come to the show, I will ask him and then I will email <laughs> you his answer. Okay, now. <laughs> From the Turing test, we go to uh, John Searle Chinese room. I uh, I listened to one of John Searle uh, lectures, and he said that he just uh, uh, when he just read Turing test for the first time, he was on a plane, and he just you know thought about the Chinese room experiment, and he thought, okay, it must be so trivial that probably everyone thought about it, and he was amazed. He was just mesmerized that this little silly Chinese room test became persistent over and through the years, and no one contradicted. He was himself. He never believed that this simple example will rise such a difficulty to the realm of artificial intelligence. I think we have to say that, I mean, 
when John and I uh, edited our book uh, on on Oxford for Oxford University Press in 2002, we solicited the, the idea behind the book was to solicit contributions from ten leading cognitive scientists and ten leading philosophers. John Preston was is a professor of philosophy at, at the University of Reading, which is one of the top places to study philosophy in the UK. Uh, and, and I was on the faculty of the cybernetics department at the University of Reading. And um, together we reached out to our contacts in the world of AI and cognitive science, from, from me and from John into the world of philosophy. And we asked people to give us their reflections on the Chinese room argument from so 21 years on. Now, I think it's fair to say that, that, that it is not the case that everyone is persuaded by the argument. Uh, and certainly I, I, over my life, academic life, I've been to speak on the Chinese room and at my own minor contributions to this debate, the Dancing with Pixies Reductio, in many universities, in the most of the universities in the UK and a number in Europe and America. And, and it's fair to say that most of the AI scientists that I meet are, are hostile to the Chinese room. So it isn't obvious to me that Searle has unambiguously carried the day with that argument. That said, I've studied... Uh, I spent a lifetime studying the responses to the Chinese room. Uh, and I and my co-editor, who is a philosopher with no axe to grind one way or the other, uh, 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 John and I both were of the opinion at, at the end of that project in bringing the book together that Searle's argument was robust. And, and I still haven't deviated from that opinion 20 years after the book was published. So well, I haven't seen anything that makes me think that Searle was wrong. I, we come back to your anecdote. What's interesting is, of course, that Searle was one of the, his great contributions to philosophy is in the work of looking at intentionality. I mean, this does actually cross over with the Chinese room argument. Um, but he was first and foremost a scholar of intentionality uh, and a philosopher of mind. And the Chinese room, is, as you as you summarise, is one tiny little piece of a huge out, lifetime output. He's one of the great philosophers uh, of the 20th century. And, and it is kind of mad that the this small argument is, is still debated so passionately, you know, um, 42 years after it first appeared. Um, but I, I think this is in part, there are certain arguments in AI uh, and in, in, in many fields where people, they're so simple that people think they understand them without having the hassle of having to go and read the original paper. And uh, I think the Turing test is one such example. I think John Searle's Chinese Room is another I think Rod, the work of Roger Penrose is another great example. People, a lot of people think they understand Penrose's position, but rarely take the time to read the 70 to 80 pages in Shadows of the Mind, where he outlines his, his arguments about the non-computable nature of thought in exquisite detail. And uh, so I've often found that people often labour under various misapprehensions when you talk about the Turing test. For example, a common misapprehension there is that it's not interactive. But of course, the, one of the fundamental qualities of the Turing test that makes it interesting is that it is interactive. Uh, with the Chinese room, people often think that Searle's arguing that no man could not make a system that could genuinely understand and have intentional states. The Chinese room is ambivalent about such a claim. All it says is what can be achieved by formal symbol manipulation. Um, and uh, yeah, so I think a lot of these confusions come because people, you know, everyone's busy and we can't, and when we think we understand what appears to be superficially a simple argument, we sometimes lack the motivation to go and read the source material where we will often discover the arguments a little bit more nuanced than we first imagined. One of the things that it's worth uh, remembering and taking from this uh, great paper, Minds, Brains and Programs, is that in the paper, he presents 
the uh, the answers or the questions to the Chinese room. The system reply by Berkeley, the robot reply by Yale, the brain simulator reply. So it 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 just lay everything, all the pros, all the cons. It tries to answer. I uh, think we need simply. to be clear here. Uh, 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 so considered what I call the classic six or seven responses that you just discussed. And in his paper, he, he collated those responses and wrote his counter response to those. In the original BBS peer commentary target article, there was about another 20 or 30 commentaries from Searle's peers. Uh, and then Searle was invited to reflect on those at the end of the target article. But it's important to clarify, there are effectively two forms of the Chinese Room paper. There's the original BBS target article with lots and lots and lots of commentary from Searle's peers. And there's the, what, the paper that Searle originally submitted, which considers six or seven possible what's what so considered potential counters to the chinese room okay so now we need to explain john searle chinese room with your permission let me do it briefly and if i made a fatal mistake or a tiny little niche mistake please correct me the idea of john searle uh, chinese room is about the idea of whether uh, whether machines can actually think can actually understand and John Searle gives the uh, example or a metaphor of a, of a person uh, locked in a room with a giant dictionary, and we will need to go back to this giant dictionary, and he gets input, slips of papers. Let, with... let, 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 let's stop, yes. stop, stop, stop straight away. It's a rule book, not, not a dictionary. Yeah, so, yeah. I, I'm and sorry, that I'm rule sorry. book correlates to what we might think of as a program. Uh, and just the backstory that's critical before, to, before you begin the exposition of the Chinese room is that Searle originally penned this when he was going to spend some time in the labs uh, uh, as a guest of Shank and Labelson, who were at that time in the late 70s, they'd written a book called Scripps, Pop, Goals and Understanding, where they were investigating a particular methodology as to how to build computers that could answer questions about stories, simple questions. So they couldn't give you what's the meaning of war and peace or does God exist? But given the story of the form, Jack and Jill goes up the hill to fetch a pail of water, Chuck and Abelson's programs could say, if you said, who went up the hill? They would respond, Jack and Jill went up the hill. Why did Jack go up the hill to fetch a pail of water? That's the level of sophistication. And so looked at how Chuck and Abelson's uh, programs worked and this then led to the formulation of the original Chinese room. So some things that seem quite uh, archaic when, as you get into your exposition, the idea of a rule book and piles of papers, one being a script, one being a story, one being questions about a story, these are all devices that are meant to mirror the work of Shankar Nabelson's original setup. But actually, the Chinese room is much more general. But I'll shut up now and you can... Okay, you can, you can no, no, it's very... It it is very important, and, and I, I really advise everyone to just read the paper in the short version, Mind, Brains, and Program. This is a not a long uh, a long version, and you can read it in, in just two hours. Okay, so again, we have a rule book, that, uh, and, and we have a, an input to the room with slips of paper with scribble, uh, uh, how we say it? Squiggle and squiggle. Squiggle and squiggle. And those squiggle and squiggle represent Chinese language or Chinese letters or Chinese words. So could Searle doesn't, Searle doesn't could even please? know that. Yes. Searle and Searle doesn't even know that this is Chinese. No. All, he, all, all he 
he has is the rule book that says, if the input is squiggle and then squiggle, then please uh, output a paper with squiggle, squiggle, squiggle. And yeah. this basically is the rule book of uh, the Turing test. I ask questions represented by squiggle and squiggle, which is a, a, the symbol for Chinese language. I don't, I as an interpreter don't understand nothing because I don't speak Chinese. I don't know the meaning of those squiggle and squiggle and I don't have a dictionary. All I have, like you said, is a rule book. And this rule book doesn't have meaning, doesn't have a dictionary. And I output other meaning. I output, I, I, I input, I output, I input, I output. So if I zoom out from the room, it seems that we have a conversation, we have an intelligent conversation. I ask question in Chinese, and those questions are interpreted by the rule book and get answers. But we can't say that the person inside the Chinese room understands nothing. And this is where John Searle says, listen, this is what you do is with all your computer programs. And you say that those computer programs can understand, they understand just like the men locked in the Chinese room. How bad did they do it? That was a good first approximation. Uh, the conclusion uh, <laughs> is... You are very polite. You are very, the, the, very polite, the, the, Mark. The computational systems understand nothing, and that is why, in the title of the paper that you just read, it's so forceful. Artificial intelligence is stupid because it understands nothing in virtue of the Chinese room, and causal reasoning won't fix it because, a priori, if the Chinese room is correct, no computational solution will fix it. So that's why there's such a strident title to that paper. Now, I'd like to come back because I think it is important. When we give imprecise descriptions of thought experiments, these can get propagated and, 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 and then things can diverge too far from, from the original. So I think it's, it is important for your, for your viewers just to sort of finesse what you said a little bit. So <clears throat> the situation as Sol described is, is, is he is in a room which happens to be located in China for argument's sake. And in this room, is a, uh, he sees three piles of papers. And on these papers are strange signs. He doesn't know what they are. They're, he calls them squiggles and squoggles. Uh, so there's a pile of papers. Each one has some squiggles and squoggles on. Unbeknownst to Searle, one pile of paper represents a script. And we, when we say script here, I don't mean a script like how you write a, a sentence, a script in the... Uh, in the sense of writing, but a script in the computational sense, which is a set of typical expectations unfolding over time. So to get to flesh out for your, and again, this is because, so formulated an experiment initially as a response to the work of Shank and Abelson, and they were heavily committed to the idea of using scripts. So what we mean, what Shank and Abelson meant by a script was like a, a set of expectations that unfold over time, like a timeline, if you like, with probable events on it. So if I give to you a, a restaurant script might be, uh, a typical restaurant script might be, I go to a restaurant, action one, I open the door, action two, I go in, action three, I look for a maitre d', action four, I ask to be taken to a table, action five, I pick up a menu, action six, I'll choose some drinks, action seven, I'll choose some meals, action eight, I'll have my drink, I'll eat my meal, I'll pay for the bill, uh, uh, and I'll leave. And that would be a set of expectations. And if we have and one of the expressions, if I enjoy my meal, I'll leave a tip. And if we then say, using that script, we can then say, given a story about a restaurant, like Mark went to a restaurant, 
he had uh, a nice vegetarian lasagna. He chatted amiably to the to the waiters. Uh, the vegetarian lasagna should be ten pound UK pounds, and he left fifteen pounds. You can infer that he left a large tip, and because he left a large tip, you would infer. Would you infer that I enjoyed my meal or I didn't enjoy it? Well, I would hope you infer that I enjoyed my meal. So we're allowed, using these set of expectations, we can infer hidden knowledge that's not explicitly stated in stories. <coughs> so coming back to Chinese room, so it imagines there's one set of symbols that define a script that pertains to a particular story, another set of symbols that define a story in Chinese, and the third set of symbols are questions about that story. Right? The rule book tells him how to correlate these sim symbols together and how to give put symbols through a letterbox to the outside world in response to the questions that are in the third pile. Right? Now, so nuts to sell those are Chinese ideographs, the symbols, and they represent a script, a story, and questions about the story. And as the designers of the rule book got really, really good, the responses that Searle gave out through the letterbox to people in the outside world became indistinguishable from those a native Chinese person would give when asked those questions about that story. So to come back, the story might be something like Jack and Jill went up the hill to get a pail of water, uh, who went up the hill and, and Searle would give out the symbols Jack and Jill. And that would be indistinguishable from the responses a native Chinese person would make. Uh, now, the point that Searle makes in the vanilla initial form of the Chinese room argument is that he can carry out the rules in that rule book, not even know that these symbols are Chinese symbols as opposed to Japanese symbols or just abstract art. And he's putting symbols to, through the letterbox people in the United world. He's got no notion that he's involved in, a, in answering questions about a story in Chinese. He's a monoglot English speaker. He's got no, he doesn't understand the word of Chinese at the beginning of this process. He can carry on doing this for infinity, and he will not understand the word of Chinese. Right? So Searle understands nothing. Uh, and, and then uh, uh, Searle asserts, uh, uh, a fortiori, that, that, that neither does the system. If Searle doesn't sound anything, then the system doesn't un understand anything. Now, the, the critical point to clear up at this juncture is that Searle originally formulated this as a response to Shank and Nagelson's work. So in the Chinese room, it's set up there's a mirror of Shank and Abelson's approach to natural language understanding, which very few people bother with these days. The big, at the moment, our big, big natural language stuff is all, all GPT-3 on uh, large language models. That's, that's where the money is these days. But it's critical to know that in the Chinese room paper, Searle is absolutely, you know, he wants the idea of the rule book to stand as a metaphor for any possible computer program. So the, the papers, they're just variables. It's like when you dry run a computer program, you might write down A equals 10, then A equals 11. These are just bits of papers that you might write down the contents of internal variables on your program. The important thing is the rule book, and that rule book can stand for any possible computer program. So Searle can run any possible computer program with bits of papers locked in a room, give out answers that are in, uh, in response to questions about stories in Chinese that are indistinguishable from those in native Chinese speaker might make, and yet not understand the word of Chinese. Just so a second, can, just a second. Can I expand Searle's argument? And I know in in the original paper it was referred to to Shank Walker, but can I expand Searle's argument to any informal Chinese conversation and this yes. rule book still be valid, yes? 
Yeah, I mean, people. That's an extension of the Chinese room, but I, I, I believe a valid one. And I think the thought, the power. If the Chinese room thought has any modal power, then it works in the extended form that you described, just as well as it does in the form that China. So, and again, in the extended form, the rulebook can be in infinitely anywhere. long, infinitely long. So if I got squiggle and squiggle, but before. Two iterations, I got squiggle, squiggle, squiggle. Then I say this, this, and say this. I well, think, when you say infinitely, oops. The rule book, the rule book. Yeah, I mean, when you said infinitely long, that, that I'm not certain how an infinite rule book could be put into a finite space in a room. So we've got questions about infinity cropping in here. No, but arbitrarily you... long, you mean? Like it can be arbitrarily long, but I I don't know that the rule book can. But be can but oh, okay. So let me so let me state it differently. If the rule book is finite, like in a finite state machine, then no. can <sighs> we come up with all the possibilities that, that language that natural language enable us? And this is maybe the weak spot of Searle argument, since natural language allows us to use infinite number of mm. of of no, of. No, I, I think I don't think it's a weak spot. I think I, I just ask. I just ask. I don't know. No. I just ask. No, no, no. Searle, Searle is he's running a thought experiment, like Einstein's thought experiment, imagining himself traveling on a beam of light, mm. right? Mm. And. Um, he wants to give to his opponents uh, the, 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 the Professor Stephen Hawking is famously being one such person uh, 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 and uh, Elon Musk being another, those who, who champion the idea of AGI, famously champion it. He says, right, you give me your best AGI program, whatever it is. You know, I'm not going to say it's just any program you give me, I can run the Chinese room argument on it and I can show that it doesn't understand, right? So that is what he's saying. He's allowing his opponents to use any technology, as long as it's computational, any algorithmic technology they wish, he will follow the, uh, the algorithm through, produce answers that are indistinguishable from those a native Chinese speaker would give, and yet still not understand a word Chinese. So this is Searle's claim. He's trying to give power to his opponents by, uh, by saying this applies to anything. And this is actually clearer in the original Mind Brains program paper, but many people gloss, don't notice why Searle states this. It's, it is clear that Searle intended the argument to apply to any possible program. Now, now John Searle threw a bomb on the AI community, and the AI community threw the very same bomb back to John Searle and say, listen, your Chinese room argument can be applied to human brain. In the human brain, we have cells, we have nerves, we have synapse, and none of them, it just, if I get this pulse and this pulse and this pulse, then I fire another neuron. Then how does understanding and consciousness emerges in the human brain, given that your Chinese room uh, argument is valid. Would you say that this is a good question? Well, it's a common question. <laughs> it's a question. I know. I know it's a common question, common question but then I specifically ask whether it's, it's, it's a good it's, question. It's, 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 it's a question that's full of misapprehensions and effectively begs the question. Um, because Searle's argument um, purely targets the claim 
that an appropriate computer program can have genuine mental states, can genuinely understand, right? So when you try to do it in reverse, you're begging the question, right? You're assuming that the brain is a computer program. If you're saying that actually the embodiment matters, which is the school of cognitive science that I subscribe to, the embodied school of cognitive science, then these things are totally different things. One is a simulation of the thing, a very coarse simulation in any neural network that I've ever read about. They're incredibly crude approximations as to what's going on in, the, in, in, in real wet biological systems. Uh, you're begging the question, well, actually, you know, it works in reverse. The brain is a computer, therefore the argument doesn't, and we think therefore the argument doesn't hold. No, uh, I mean, Searle is, is actually says in the opening of the of the Chinese room, and, you know, that it may be possible to uh, to um, uh, build machines that can think. It's just that the technology won't be a simple Turing machine, grounded on a simple Turing machine, a computation. There'll be some other thing that we've yet to discover that will that will uh, that will build that. He's not making. He still actually says we are machines. Humans are machines. We're biological machines. And I see no in principle reason why we shouldn't build thinking machines at some point. I'm, he's making the claim that computation uh, is neither necessary nor sufficient for semantics or understanding or intention, genuine intention of states. So that argument in reverse doesn't, doesn't work. It begs the question. It's a, it's a poor philosophical argument. It's a, it has within it a fallacy. And the fallacy of begging okay, the question. Okay, very good. Right? Building on that, of course, in the classic responses, that Searle actually considered in the short version of the No, time. no, 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 before, before we move on to the classic responses, I have another one important question. One, one important question. My question is, in your opinion, and you lie in both worlds, one in the world of philosophy, psychology, and, and other in the world of, of like deep, hard work, you know, AI when you write code in TensorFlow and Python and Keras and PyTorch, okay? So two very different worlds. And my question is, in your opinion, how much, if you can quantify it, the Chinese room argument change something in the AI community? I teach AI, I teach data science, I teach deep learning in the universities, and I can, you know, refer to Chinese room just as an anecdote, as a philosophical, historical anecdote that has nothing to do with the text itself nothing to do just some you know i owe you know religious jew we always uh, love to worship the uh, our ancestors so we worship ellen Turing and we worship uh, newman and now we have john sell but in the context of our daily work it has nothing to do and my question is do you think that this chinese room argument made a difference to the world of ai well, it made a difference to me, and I, I've spent. I first started working in AI in 1980, so I've been working in the field for 42 years, which is over half the time that there has been a field of AI. From position the birth of AI with uh, Alan Turing's first computer chess program in 1948. So uh, I can say it made a difference to me when I became aware of it. Prior to becoming aware of the Chinese Room, like many AI postgrads, I'd read a lot of dodgy science fiction. I was convinced that I would be able to, if not me, one of my colleagues would build a genuine thinking, intelligent machine uh, along the lines of by copying interesting aspects of how we believe the brain to work. In other words, my PhD started out in neural networks. 
And in fact, uh, I spent a lot of time looking at the Fukushima's neocognitron, which if you teach deep learning, you will know is one of the forerunners of one of the earliest deep learning uh, architectures. Um, <clears throat> so that's where I started out. And then I happened to see John Searle debate with Dan Dennett at, uh, in Oxford, the year that the Parallel Distributed Processing book, Rummel Art Instrument Helens, Volume 1, was published. And that was a massive conference that was oversubscribed many, many times. And I had the good fortune to be taken there and see that. And that was my first exposure to philosophers debating. Prior to that, I'd been to computer science conferences where everything was nice and measured and people were relatively polite to each other. When I saw philosophers debate, it was like seeing two gladiators in, in a ring where they fought to the death. It was a total level of personal invective that I'd never seen in a conference before. It's clear that Searle and Dennett literally loathed the sight of each other. And um, uh, and they came to blows. This, is a, very, this is a very important observation. I've never thought about it, but you know, this is a very important observation that you just laid out. I need to think about it. But you know, you're absolutely correct. When it comes to philosophy, it's coming to, to the core of things. And yeah. in the AI, you know, when you say Gary Marcus with uh, Yeshua Benigo, okay. But when you... Yes. Yeah, I mean, this, this yeah. is what... This is, I find this, and I talk about... Perhaps we'll get time to talk about my own minor contribution, the Dancing with Pixie Reductio later on, um, which purports to show that computation cannot give rise to phenomenal consciousness unless consciousness is in everything. Uh, in other words, panpsychism is true. And um, <clears throat> when I presented that argument at universities, it, often the people I meet who are so uh, committed to strong AI have extremely strong atheistic tendencies. I mean, I'm broadly speaking an atheist, as it happens, but um, the people who are most committed to that, uh, they cling to this as a, in an almost quasi, I think, quasi-religious way, uh, the idea that uh, there is nothing more to thinking than can be explained with a suitable computer program. And so when you give an argument, whether it's the Chinese room or the Dancing with Pixies Reductio, that seems at first sight to, under, to attack that core belief, you, I get involved in very passionate debate in, a debate, in a way that I don't when I talk about, for example, my technical contributions to AI, which are in stochastic diffusion processes, and interactive systems and swarm intelligence. You know, it's very rare that anyone will get particularly passionate and angry or agitated when I present on that. When I'm presenting on, on the philosophy of AI, I very often encounter extremely robust debate. Um, and I think it's because it questions really deep ideas about who we are and where we are and how we fit and work and interact with the world. Just a second, let me recap, because I think it's, it's, it's profoundly important. What you said is that for, for an atheist that believes, like Kirk, yes, like the famous Kirk quote, that everything in human experience is <coughs> just brain nerve cells, and you say, listen, if you go in this computational direction, then understanding doesn't exist, it, it, it raises important and profound questions regarding what it means to be human, Therefore, yeah. atheists have are more inclined to object the the Chinese room argument. Yes. Yeah, because they see that uh, for many years computationalism uh, or Turing machine functionalism was the only game in town. 
So if you you either had on the one hand religious or what some have disparagingly called mysterian views about the mind and understanding, and on the other you had computational views, functionalism, Turing machine functionalism. So it, to many people, they thought, well, I, I, I'm, I'm not religious, therefore it, the only other game in town is computationalism. I'll have to hang my hat on that peg. And then if someone like Mark Bishop comes along and questions what can be achieved by mere computation, these people, wrongly, in my opinion, believe they're getting pushed towards uh, mysticism or mysterious views about. Oh, mysticism. this is great! This is great stuff. This is great stuff. You know, I had a talk with Christoph Koch. Uh, he is a very famous neuroscientist, and he, he deals with consciousness. And he, he, one of his book is called uh, "Confession of of a Romantic Reductionist." So I'm a reductionist, but I I I'm not subscribed to this computational thing stuff and I, I, he has hard time with how to express how to explain to myself what does it mean to be human without the without the transcendental it is very it's very inter interesting what you just said very interesting yeah, and I, but I think the, the problem is that most people AI scientists are, are, are unaware of modern developments in cognitive science which the ones I'm particularly interested in emphasize the role of the body so that, yes, neurons are important to, to, to uh, uh, address Crick's claim, but they're not the whole story. Neurons exist in a thing called the brain, and a brain exists in a thing called the body, and a body exists in an environment we call the world, and in another environment we call society. And it seems to me that all of those things uh, are important to our cognitive states and understanding. And in fact, when I was at uh, worked at Goldsmiths, there was a professor there of psychology who did some amazing work on colour perception, which I think beautifully illustrates this. I, I, I'm going to make some claims about Jules's work, which he would never make. Jules Davidov is a very conservative and, 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 and mature and robust academic, and he did not um, to make wild claims. So I'm going to extrapolate from the results of his work to make what I think some people would say is a wild claim. But hopefully you'll get why in a second. Jules did work on colour boundary classification, colour classification amongst a, a tribe in Africa called the Himba, that originally, if I remember correctly, only had four, four colour terms. And <clears throat> the, the experiment that's just so powerful that stuck with me for years looked at initially a set of ochre-like tiles, each one slightly different by a uniform distance in, uh, in colour space from the other. Uh, and then there was an odd one out that crossed the Himba colour boundary. And when you present those tiles to the Himba, that one that was odd one out popped out at them. So he said, which is the odd one out? They pointed to it, they got it right instantaneously every time. You give that test to a Western European, and we're scanning around all the tiles, and usually we'll get the odd one out, but not always. So in other words, it takes time, and we're slightly error now we get like system two from Daniel Kahneman. They use system one and we use system two. Well, I'll just, just wrap up. The, then the second experiment shows a set of green tiles, each tile slightly different from the previous essay, arranged in the circle by a uniform color distance, and a blue tile. Now, obviously, for Westerners, green and blue are a big color boundary. So when you say, What's the odd one now? All Europeans will go, The blue one, and they'll do it instantaneously, they'll get it right every time, and they don't have to do an exhaustive search. The blue pops out at them because phenomenally we experience a different color the astonishing thing is you give that to the himba and these guys are scratching their heads 
they get it wrong, they take in ages, they can't see the colour pop out. So that says to me that, that the Himba language, just let, let me finish, the Himba language informs their colour phenomenology. Because if they actually saw it as very, very different from the others, they would it would pop out at them. This is my interpretation of Jules's results. And I must underscore this is my interpretation. Uh, and I don't know whether how far along this route Jules would be comfortable in going. But it seems to me that the only rational explanation for these results is that the phenomenology of the Himba is different to that from a European because of their different languages. The Sapir Wharf hypothesis writ large, if you like. So that's why, one of the reasons why I think to look at someone's sensations and understanding purely in terms of brain chemistry or neural chemistry is, is, is a misguided way to go. We've got to look at neurons that are, they are important, but they're part of a wider system. Neurons exist in the brain system, the brain exists in the body system, the body exists in a body environment interaction, and we as humans exist in a human society which has language. All these things contribute to understanding. And this is a great, uh, I think, argument by Gary Marcus that the AI community is so, I don't know how to say it, but uh, uh, obnoxious. I don't know if the word is obnoxious, but it doesn't want to learn from other disciplines like cognitive psychology and what you just said. And by the way, I don't, I, I think that the Sapir-Wolf uh, assumption can be sometimes valid. I, I don't think, you know, like the Pinker that, language doesn't make, make a difference and you can present anything with any language. And, and in many, many examples, like in many uh, experiments, like you showed, language does make a difference on how we perceive things. And we can say that, okay, one can, in a different language, can train his eyes to see blue or, or distinguish blue from, from a, a, a green. But again, in the Himbo, this is different. They perceive the world differently. Yeah. And it's again, it comes back to an aphorism from the, uh, uh, the French uh, author Anais Nin, who, who famously said, we can only see what we know. Um, and um, again, in my own existence, when I was an undergraduate, one of my friends was at a different university to me in, in the town of Leeds. At that time, Leeds had a large red light area. Um, and he said to me the first time I visited him, I hope the, uh, the, the, the working ladies didn't bother you. But because I'd had no experience of such people in my life, no one ever have since, I was utterly unaware that they existed, that I walked through this entire area utterly unaware of it. I was unable to see what I didn't know. And uh, I think that's, that's an interesting way of looking about the world. It's not as though everyone has the same camera and we pointed at the world and we all get the same data out of it. Again, another, Afro, another example from a colleague of mine is one of the most cited computer scientists in the world. Uh, my best man, I went, a guy called Phil Tor, he's a professor at Oxford, on, works on computer vision. And um, <clears throat> I remember when he first got one of his uh, uh, early uh, experiments, computer vision, to work really well. So you could give it a scene, and you could say, you know, what's that picture of? And it would describe what was in the image. And the one time Phil showed me, he had a picture of a, a, a countryside scene with some horses by a fence and in the distance a hill. Uh, and there's a beautiful summer day and there's some sheep on the background. And Phil said, what's that, what, what is the picture of? And the program would say, this is a picture of a horse standing by a fence in a field. And I said to Phil, well, 
that's not really true. If I if I was a shepherd, I would say that's a picture of uh, Cumbrian longhorn sheep on the hillside. If I was a meteorologist, I would say, oh, that's a great picture of some cumulonimbus clouds. Uh, if I was a, a grass specialist, I might say, oh, that's a specialist area of grass there. In other words, the meaning of the picture is contingent, to paraphrase Wittgenstein, on the use that we're going to put it to on our own expertise and expectations. So I, I, I actually dispute the fact that there is one canonical reading of, of an image. And then Phil came back to me and said, OK, yeah, that's a good point. But actually, all I'm trying to do is get an AI. That if you give that picture to 100 people, 70% of them will say it's an image of a horse by by a fence. And if my AI can replicate that, that's good enough for me. Uh, but it was an interesting dialogue, and I hope again. But again, but it uh, it brings us back to the engineering versus the ontological question. I, with your permission, I have two last questions. One, uh, in your opinion, what is the best argument against the Chinese room? Because there are several arguments, including the system, uh, the simulation, the robot, and what is its answer. So let's just bring the best argument to the table and what's its answer? Well, the one that had the most power for me uh, was came from the philosopher John Howland and was I first came across it in his essay that he submitted to our book, Views into the Chinese Room. And uh, John says, why do we... Uh, John's talking about Searle's, uh, reflects on Searle's response to what's become known as the systems reply. So very early on, in the debate around the Chinese room, the, the supporters of AGI and strong AI would say, yeah, Searle doesn't understand the word of Chinese. It's the system of Searle, the rule book, the bits of paper and the room. Together, they constitute a Chinese understanding system. And Searle said, oh, well, I find it quite bizarre for you to say that if I don't understand Chinese, me and a bit of, a, a bit of paper do, but let's run with this. I'm going to imagine I'm some kind of idiot savant who's got miraculous powers of memory, and I'm going to memorise the rule book, and I'm going to memorise all the variables, the, bit, the symbols I write on scraps of paper, and I'm now going to follow the programme in my mind's eyes. So I'm going to be looking at the questions, the scraps of paper which define the story, the questions about the story and the script. So here, this is the system. Everything, the system is here. It's now in my head, so there's nothing that isn't in my head. I can still go through the programme give out answers that are indistinguished from those a native Chinese speaker would give and still not understand the word of Chinese. And I find that a, a, a robust response, but how do I say, well, hang on a minute. Are we allowed to make that assumption? Perhaps when Searle executes this system, there's a subsystem in Searle's brain, a bit like multiple personality disorder. Let's call it how. So when Searle runs the Chinese, the Chinese understanding programme, inside his mind by stepping through it one stage at a time, he's invoking a computational system, we'll call that how, but who's to say that how doesn't understand Chinese? And uh, I thought that was an interesting reflection, bringing in the idea of multi-personality. So Searle now consists of Searle as in the monoglot English speaker, but also within him, unbeknownst to Searle, the English speaker, there's now another personality, just like multiple personality disorder, these personalities don't talk to each other, but when Searle runs the program, the how personality is at the forefront and how actually does understand Chinese. But how can <coughs> talk with John? Because John doesn't understand Chinese. Just how understand Chinese? Well, this is, this is, this is, <laughs> this is the question. 
And it seemed to me that, well, well let's imagine then that we give to the to John Searle uh, a joke. We give him a joke in Chinese and how gives out the appropriate answers. And we give Searle a joke in English and Searle finds it funny. When he finds it funny because Searle's a big... Uh, it, 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 it has a big sense of humour. His whole body shakes with laughter because he's got the joke and finds it funny. But bizarrely, when we give him the joke in Chinese, although Hao, Hao gives out the symbols, ha ha, Searle's body gives none of the physiological indications of laughter because he doesn't understand it. So I think so that seems again. to me that the phenomenality of understanding is absent in the Hao case and it's present in the English joke case, which proves to me that Howe does not understand. So that was my response to John Howe. Okay, thank you. And one last thing, this is not your idea, this is Hillary Putnam idea, but I uh, I was introduced to Putnam idea by yours, uh, by uh, some of your lectures. So I want, if you can please elaborate, because many people say, yes, there is, if finite state machine or, or Turing state machine or discrete state machine have consciousness, then we can say that the entire universe is also conscious. So could this, you please this, this, elaborate on this argument because you just mentioned it, but uh, this is a very good argument and I think that we need to elaborate it uh, about it a little bit. Thank you. Um, yeah, it's called the Dancing with Pixies Reductio ad Absurdum. It, it follows a particular form of philosophical argument where you take things through and you see if you follow the premises, you're led to a ridiculous conclusion. Hence, if you reject the conclusion, you're meant to reject the premises. And um, in the Dancing with Pixies Reductio, I start my work, again, from Turing's paper, Computing Machine and Intelligence. And in that paper, Turing describes a very proto-computational device. I call it Turing's wheel. And it's a device that is like uh, a clock, or the hour hand of a clock that could exist in one of three positions, the 12 o'clock position, the four o'clock position, and the eight o'clock position. And at each tick of the clock, the hand rotated round. And this was a physical discrete state machine, as Turing called it, Turing's discrete state machine. And we could describe the operation of that machine if we label the 12 o'clock position uh, state A, four o'clock state B, the eight o'clock state C, we can say that if the machine is in state A, the next A, the next clock ticket will go to state B. If it's in state B, it will go to C. And if it's in C, it will go back to A. So we can derive a, a, a truth table, or a state transition table that describes, given any state of the machine, what the next state of the machine will be. Now, the important thing to realize about this discrete state machine is that it... Um, the computational states are mapped by us humans onto the physical states of the system. So the system is just a pointer that clicks around in three positions. I can arbitrarily assign computational state A to the top position or the four o'clock position or the eight o'clock position, and then concomitantly associate the other states around that. And that tells me that computational states are always assigned to physical states of systems. I, you can also illustrate this very beautifully if you're familiar with the operation of a AND gate. So if I give you a truth table and I say that it's got two inputs, a, a gate, a mystery gate, it's got two inputs and one output. And if both the inputs are zero, the output's going to be zero. If 
if input A is zero and input B is one, the output's zero. If input A is one and B is zero, the output's zero. If both inputs are one, the output is one, right? Or true. Uh, one, sorry. If, if we assign naught to false and one to true, then that is describing an AND function, okay? However, if we describe, if we assign zero to be true and one to be, to be false, the same bit of hardware is performing the OR function. Uh, uh, and this is an idea that uh, a, a colleague, an Israeli colleague, Oran Shagria, has, has riffed with over many years. Uh, 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 and it just seems to me that we can't, there's always a mapping between what the physical computer hardware is doing uh, and what function we're imagining it's computing. We can't get away, there's no absolute truth to the matter. It's, a spaceman from planet Mars couldn't look at a gate and say unambiguously it's doing an OR function or an AND function without knowing the mapping between logic levels and truth levels. This is very interesting. You know, I teach computer arch ar architecture, and I never thought that the difference between AND and OR depends on yeah. our yeah. Uh, presupposition. Wow, this is very interesting. Yeah. And if you've ever done any work on CMOS or TTL, you'll see there are lots of different, uh, 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 over the years, there have been many different uh, conventions as to how to map voltage levels to truth levels. It's not the case. They've always been the levels we associate now. The various different ones have been experimented with. And it gets worse. It gets worse because there are what we call game isomorphisms. So you're familiar with the game Tic-Tac-Toe? Yes. Uh, there's also a game called 15, where you the, you have some cards that are numbered 1 to 10 in the pack, and they're, they're hidden, and you draw cards out one at a time. The idea is to get three cards that add up to 15, right? Uh, and you, after a while, you might have four or five, but you want any three that add up to 15. And it turns out that if you write a program for tic-tac-toe, you can use – which is based on a magic square – you can use exactly the same program without any modification whatsoever to play 15, right? So the same program can be used in two semantically different contexts, one playing tic-tac-toe, the other playing 15. So the meaning of the computation lies in its use, again, paraphrasing Wittgenstein, by human players of that game. There is no fixed meaning of what that computer program does. It depends on how we, as human uh, users... Use. Meaning is what we impose on the system. Yeah, yeah. So again, coming back to Searle, mere syntactic signal manipulations is neither necessary nor sufficient for semantics or meaning. Okay, but now how can we go from this consciousness uh, that everything oh, yeah. is... Right, so, uh, uh, we, got, we got distracted. Yeah, so I'm saying <laughs> the fundamental issue is that we need to assign computational states onto the physical states of the system. Now, the interesting thing is Turing's uh, uh, discrete state machine can be totally replicated by a digital counter. So uh, imagine like, a, like you will find in a car's myelometer that counts 0, 1, 2, 3, 4. All we have to do is map myelometer state 0, to computational state A, myelometer state 1 to computational state B, myelometer state 2 to computational state 3. And over a finite, so I, did, I should have said over a finite time period, I can implement Turing's discrete state machine by the counting of a digital myelometer. Uh, and this hangs for any 
uh, uh, sequential state sequence. So I can replicate any state transition sequence by a digital myelometer in a set of mappings. Now, <clears throat> this is Putnam's mapping. He shows how to, how to map from the states of an inputless finite state automata, uh, uh, <clears throat> uh, how, you can how you can implement any uh, input FSA by a suitable counter. Now, obviously, any digital co uh, 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 computer is a finite state machine. So you give me a digital computer and you watch its behavior over a finite time window, and you claim over that time window that computer really does have phenomenal states. It's aware. So I don't know, Elon Musk has got his super-duper AI program in there, and Elon said, yeah, this machine is conscious. It's interacting with me. Like famously, that, that uh, engineer... Uh, made the claim of Google and lost the job fairly easily. So, ah, that this machine's sentient. And I'll say, okay, I'll, I'll take that machine, that code, and I'll log all the uh, the state transitions it went through uh, over that finite time window that you said it was conscious, and I'll map my digital counter onto to generate those state transition machines now. Um, so I can now, now go through exactly the same sequence of arbitrary state transitions as your computer did, they're forced, given state one, it has to go in state two because the counter counts in two, three, four. That's the way the counter works. And because we're doing this over a, over a finite period, I can perform, legitimately perform that mapping. So if it's the case that, that generating that series of state transitions is sufficient for computational consciousness, then my counter can be conscious. And Putnam showed how we can generalize from just being a digital counter onto any open physical system. He showed how to do that in the appendix to his text representation and reality. Therefore, it seems to me, and this is the dancing with pictures reductio, that if you accept the computational generation of a sequence of, of, of state transitions is sufficient to bring forth conscious, phenomenal consciousness, then consciousness is everyone. That's in a um, nutshell. It's a little bit more nuanced than that when I go through it more formally, but that's that's very briefly the dancing with pixies argument. But one last question. Did, did Hilary Putnam believe that consciousness is everywhere or it, it was Putnam, just... Putnam wasn't using the art. It was my small contribution was to use some of Putnam's uh, technology and map the idea of a mapping uh, from a physical system to a computational system and deploy it in the world of artificial consciousness. Putnam was making an inter a very interesting claim because if you know the history of philosophy, Putnam was one of the early pioneers of functionalism. Putnam famously, the paper in the 60s, looked at how the property of being a mousetrap is a functional property. You might have a mousetrap that snaps down and cuts a mouse's head off, or you might have these so-called humane mousetraps where mice go in them and drop down and are caught in a box. But the notion of trapping a mice is a functional property. It's not identified with any particular physical configuration of matter. And this led Putnam to think that understanding and mentality were functional properties. They could, we can instantiate the mind in silicon or, or in water pipes or on a computer or in biological hardware. It's a functional, this led to the idea of the development of functionalism as a theory of mind. Putnam later recanted on that because he began to see that functionalism used this argument to collapse functionalism to behaviorism. So he said, well, using this uh, process is in the in the, in the appendix to representation of reality published in 1988, Putnam showed how functionalism collapses down to behaviorism. So he sort of, this is like a, the end point of a, 
a gap of 20 odd years of Putnam's intellectual life when he was promoting functionalism, this appendix is where he recanted on that. So actually, functionalism is really just behaviorism writ large. It's not offering us any, anything particularly new. Uh, he was really a great man. And uh, uh, wow. So let's re- let's summarize. First, Mark Bishop, thank you so much for this eye-opening, mesmerizing interview conversation. You touch on so many different and profoundly important points on AI, psychology, philosophy, consciousness. So we need you. I, I need some time to, di- to digest everything. I ask my uh, guests always two questions. One, what is the, could you recommend on a book that you had like in the last five years that influence or change a perspective in your life? Yeah, um, I guess Evan Thompson's Mind in Life, where it is a very interesting, it's a philosophy book, but it addresses issues in modern cognitive science. Um, And a paper I would recommend, just came out a few, a week or so ago, is by Tom Thurza, and it looks at how we can give a role for consciousness, and it's called Eruption Theory, a Realistic Framework for the Efficiency of Conscious Agency by Tom Thurza. Uh, if you Google that, that's an amazingly interesting uh, uh, proposal. Um, he try, I think he does a better job of explaining consciousness than, than David did uh, in, in David's famous book. Was it Consciousness Explained? I can't remember. Oh, the Conscious Mind. The Conscious Mind. Could you please, uh, could you please repeat uh, the title, e- Eruption Theory? Yeah. It's called I-R-R-U-P-T-I-O-N, Eruption Theory, colon, A Realist Framework for the Efficiency of Conscious Agency by Tom Thurza, F-R-O-E-S-E. Okay, thank you. And another thing which you are, you are very fertile, very productive, scholar, academic, you deal with so many things. Do you have one productivity tips. Many of, of my viewers are young academics, young faculty members, young people who want to just excel, be more productive and uh, produce more valuable work. So do you have like one tip? Or two tips? I, 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 my life as an academic was colored by the society I lived in. And it's a time where the government were putting metrics on academic performance. And some of the early metrics judged academic worth by the volume of papers you produced. Effectively, whatever metric the government put in, academics who are not the dimmest of people will try to optimise their performance in that metric. So I found that in my life, I've published too many papers. I I, I would rather have lived a time, if I'd lived my life 40 years earlier, where there wasn't these pressures to to, uh, to publish, I think I would have liked to have condensed my 200 plus papers to perhaps 20 really interesting ones. So I would say to them, try not, if you're a young academic, to get drawn into the horrible path where you're getting forced, obliged to publish. But, you, but, you, but this is very important. You are aware that in our current academia, especially in the 2022, we are obliged, and even more than obliged, we are even forced to publish more and pursue <clears throat> more publications. This is very hard to just say, okay, I want to, you can look back in in retrospective and say, okay, I wish I'd published instead of 200, just two 
20 very important paper, but as a young faculty member who was promotion and tenure dependent on those publication, how can he take, what can he take from your advice? Uh, well, nothing. I mean, if you, <laughs> if you go down this route, you're not going to get promoted in the climate that we live in. I was fortunate to serve part of my academic life before the big changes in UKHE, before Margaret Thatcher uh, reinvented what it meant to be, what it was to be to be an academic. So I did have experience at a time where there weren't these pressures to publish. And I found that a much more interesting academic time to live and work in. I feel sorry for people who are academics now. I don't think it's, the job is respected particularly, certainly not in the UK. And we're driven to, uh, to produce, to produce, produce, and we're, everyone is judged by citation metrics rather than uh, um, you know, the, the, the absolute value or the intrinsic value of the work that's been produced. Uh, I wonder how people you know, who didn't publish much in the past, I don't know how many papers Einstein wrote or Wittgenstein wrote, but something tells me it wasn't 200 and, and how well they've done on their citation metrics. I really don't. You know, know Wittgenstein's second book was even published after his death. Yeah. So. Yeah, philosophical investigations. Yes. Now, yeah, Mark... what, one last thing is that we didn't get to talk about my positive work in. I, what we talked about is my, my criticisms of what computers can achieve. But I've also spent a lifetime, 40 odd years, looking at swarm intelligence and neural networks and and i'm giving a talk in a couple of weeks time on linkedin where i'll be summarizing not going into any technical depth whatsoever uh, but summarizing an approach to uh, some of the problems in cognition ranging from pattern recognition to executing programs so implementing turing machine like devices on neural or swarming hardware and I'm proposing a, a, a homogeneous architecture that can effectively play games and can run programs can do pattern recognition, uh, can do reinforcement learning, all these interesting things on one homogeneous swarm architecture, which is called stochastic cohesion processes. So I, anyone, I am if anyone's interested in, in, in my positive thoughts on AI, there's, there'll be a lecture on LinkedIn. If you follow me on LinkedIn, you'll, you'll hear about that. Uh, very yes. short, and I'll give an overview of, of how I propose to do that. Now. I must tell you, I'm fascinated by swarm intelligence, and uh, with your permission, I will uh, we invite you or invite you over uh, next time to discuss yeah. those very things. Oh, and if you to... say yes, it will be uh, uh, don't forget an indication that this conversation went pretty well. So, <laughs> all right, then. but just don't forget. Again? Don't forget. No, 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 no. Again, this is again, again, I'm sorry. I, I, I want you now to promote the concept of Israeli chutzpah, but just to do it in the right boundaries. And this was outside the right boundaries. So again, Mark Bishop, thank you so much for coming. Uh, I wish you, you know, just keep contribute to society so many good things, so many good insights, and so many good uh, papers, like this one over here. This is a great one. And again, all of your other work. Thank you so much. Thank you, sir. Bye. Bye. 
אם הגעתם עד לכאן, מגיע לכם כל הכבוד. אז תנו לי להגיד לכם שלושה דברים קצרים. הדבר הראשון, אם שמעתם משהו בשיחה שמעניין אתכם, שאתם רוצים לקחת הלאה, פשוט ספרו אותו לאנשים אחרים. משהו מעניין שאני אמרתי, משהו מעניין שהאורח שלי אמר, איזשהו רעיון שאתם רוצים לקחת איתכם לחיים, פשוט ספרו אותו לחבר או לחברה. זאת הדרך הטובה ביותר לזכור את הרעיונות מתוך השיחות האלה. הדבר השני, אם אתם רוצים לקחת חלק בקהילה שלנו ולפגוש ולדבר עם אנשים כמוכם, אתם מוזמנים לערוץ הטלגרם שלנו, שווה לכם מאוד. פשוט תראו עוד אנשים שמתעניינים מדברים מגניבים בדיוק כמוכם. והדבר האחרון, אם אתם יכולים, דרגו את הערוץ שלנו באפליקציית הפודקאסטים שלכם, זה יכול להיות בספוטיפיי, באפל פודקאסט או בגוגל פודקאסט, זה תהליך קצר של שתי שניות, הוא מאוד מאוד יעזור לנו להפיץ את הבשורה הלאה. שיהיה לכם כיף גדול וכיף בשיחה הבאה.